0: Growth requires more than capital. Why do we call it the cheat code? Nobody said growth had to be fair.
1: Revenue solves everything.
0: Welcome to the cheat code. code. What was our fastest path to revenue? We tend to like to do things the hard way. What's the cheat code? It's giving yourself an unfair advantage over the others. What is it that really works and how are we going to grow these organizations? That's our cheat code. Welcome to The Cheat Code. I am John Wagner with Justin Gray. We are excited to have you along for another episode, everyone. Today, we are joined by longtime friend, Scott Albrecht. Scott, thanks for joining the show. Thanks, Josh and Justin. Great to be here. Or Jocelyn. Either way. How are you, man?
2: Been great. Started was crazy enough to start another company, so that's keeping me busy and having a ton of fun getting outside out of work. So, and, and fishing,
1: you know, I haven't been fishing that much this year. I um, well, I gotta come up again. That's, that's the missing ingredient is uh, having someone to tie their flies for them. You know what I mean? I know, I know that's been missing in your life. That was good times having you here
2: where I could just guide you around and you could catch one four inch fish. That was. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Monster.
2: (laughs) No, I I have a new addiction. I've gotten super into um, gravel riding. You know uh, what? Oh yeah, you're not familiar with this, so I'm not. It's um, it's this new like craze in the world of cycling where a lot of people don't like to ride on roads anymore because it's dangerous dangerous yeah. um so there's this new thing called gravel riding where you can base it, it, these kind of purpose-built road bikes that you can take on like trails and fire roads and that kind of stuff super fun oh so it's nice. another bike that you gotta buy it's yeah exactly it's more yeah. gear. <laughs>
0: got it <laughs> and now as these trend goes stocks on a bike graveyard where every cycling trend has gone through is life pretty exciting stuff yeah. Well, Scott, we, we appreciate you during the show, you know, on this show, I, as you know, we talk about founders and their cheat code, uh, building and scaling companies. And we thought it was super interesting when we were prepping with you talking about building a brand, because I think there's a lot of misnomers around brand and what that means, especially for early stage companies. So it'd be great if you could just kind of kick us off with what are your thoughts on, and why do you call brand your, your cheat code?
2: I prefer a different phrase to describe it because I think brand most people think uh well that that's a marketing endeavor, right and it's like in it's it's an arts and crafts marketing endeavor. It's not something mm-hmm. that's quantifiable or anything like that. And so what I the way I prefer to think about it is you want the market to think that you are a lot bigger and capable of, a, a lot bigger than you actually are, and capable of punching way above your weight, especially when you're a startup, obviously. I mean, it doesn't matter so much if you're a big established business, right? Um, then the market already perceives you that way. But when you're a startup, it's really, really important to get the outside world, the market, your customers, partners, uh, prospective employees, etc., to believe that you're bigger than you actually are. That's something we did really well at one of my previous companies, a company called Topo. Um, we actually spent a lot of time and effort on that and and spent a lot of time thinking about how to create this perception around Topo that made it seem like Topo played a bigger role in the market than maybe it actually did. And that paid dividends in a lot of different areas.
1: So, you know, as Josh mentioned there, like brand and Like the whole arts and crafts thing that you referred to, like tends to be this like ethereal concept, which a lot of people kind of dismiss, right? Like I think we've all been through brand workshops, and you know maybe brought in a bunch of like six and seven figure agencies to to figure out brand. It largely like lives on the shelf. How do you how do you make that brand? uh, First and foremost, I'd love to hear you verbalize what like Topo's brand was, because as you said, like it was it was kind of front and center and permeated everything within that business but then also like how do you make that actionable and something that you know can be followed and adhered to just you know and obviously you guys you know we're a small organization you know a couple of folks thinking about what you wanted to be and then you scaled up from there how, how did you permeate that you know as you grew well i i think you're thinking of it the exact right
2: way and the way we did at topo which is first of all you have to understand or come to a decision on like what do you stand for as a company? And what and more importantly than that, again, what does the outside world think that you stand for? right? And so you, you need like these brand principles or um, foundational positioning or messaging, you know, like all the classic things you use to sort of bolster a brand. But then the second thing is you need to figure out how to manifest that brand in a really tangible material way. And and this, in my opinion, is where most branding exercises sort of fall down. Like it's pretty easy to agree to like, well, here's who we think we are, and here are the principles, and here's how we want to position ourselves in the market. And then where it gets really hard is when you actually try and make that tangible to a customer or a partner or whatever. And so at Topo, figuring out what, what we wanted to stand for and how we wanted people to think about us was actually pretty easy. We were a research and advisory firm that was helping sales and marketing organizations basically grow faster is kind of like, like that was our value proposition to our clients. And so we kind of described the business as like a Gartner group for sales and marketing, just to help people easily understand what we did. So that's all, that's sort of, that stuff's all like motherhood and apple pie, pretty easy to agree to, pretty easy to understand. Where things got more interesting is we thought, okay, well, if we want our our prospects and customers to think of us as like, hey, we're like this third-party engine that can just help you grow faster, what's the best way to do that? And um, the best way to do that, the first thing we figured out was like, well, you have to work with companies that are already growing really fast. Right, and so we made this decision that we were going to focus on Bay Area high growth. We, we call them startups, but some of them were huge companies already. You know, like Twilio and ServiceNow, and, mm-hmm. and so forth. But when you looked at the companies that we worked with, you thought, "Wow, this company Topo—maybe they're really small. We don't know. But this company Topo is literally working with like dozens of the fastest-growing companies in the world." That seems pretty interesting if you're ahead of sales or ahead of marketing and you're looking for some third-party research or advisory support or to, to attend an event or something like that. so So that was one thing we did to really try and manifest this idea of like, we'll help you grow faster. We just surrounded ourselves with other high growth companies. Another thing that we did is we were very well known for our events. You could come to our events and, and again, feel like you were surrounded just by like high growth stuff. And like an example of this is if you go to different analyst firm events, research advisory type events, whether it's Gartner, Forrester, or whatever, they tend to put the analysts up on the pedestal and say, hey, come here, this analyst speak and so forth. We actually flipped that. We did have our analysts speak, but the vast majority of speakers at our events, were the sales and marketing leaders from those high growth companies. And so you could come to a Topo event and you kind of almost didn't even know it was Topo, right? Like you were there listening to the head of demand gen from hot company XYZ talk about, you know, the latest marketing tactics that they were using. So that was another great way to kind of put the brand in front of customers and prospects in a really tangible way where, where they could see it. There are lots more examples like that that we can get into, but but really like surround yourself with good companies is was kind of a thing that helped us like make that brand real tangible.
0: Yeah, so I, mean, I think if you take that even a step a step further on the tangibility side, because you were surrounding yourselves with these you know really high growth recognizable brands, you got access to the questions they were asking. And one of the things that I noticed you all did really well, and I like to think we did fairly well at MD, was you put out content, a lot of content that was basically answering the questions that the the big names were asking out there, right? And and distributed in in that type of manner. Was that an intentional effort on your side or just a byproduct of having access?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that was core to our business model. When you look at these research advisory businesses, one of the things they all do is they they just produce research. What's interesting about you recognizing that um, we sort of had a front row seat to the questions that these companies and practitioners inside of these companies were, were asking, what's interesting about that is there's some pattern pattern recognition that took place pretty early in the days of, of Topo, which was, yeah, it was easy to see, like you know, uh, head of head of RevOps at company X Y Z. They were interested in, in you know knowing about topic whatever, right? What was more interesting is seeing this pattern emerge where we quickly realized that most of these people were asking how questions they weren't asking like what or why questions, they were very interested in learning about how to do something specifically. And that became, that's less about the brand, that became more about like our value proposition and the value we ultimately delivered to our customers. We had this saying, which people make fun of me for now called specificity wins, right? And that was another way of saying, hey, we're not just gonna tell our customers like, what works or why it works. We're not going to fly at 30,000 feet. We're going to get into the weeds and tactics and spe- and specifics of like how to go execute on something because that's ultimately what matters to, to these people, right? It's like, yeah, I can go... Re- if I know how to use Google or now GPT or whatever, I can go figure out what something is or why to do it. Where it gets tough is like how to go
0: do it.
1: And so, yeah, I mean, we had... Craig on in the uh uh early days of the show here. And he, you know, he always brings up like the no ramen example, and you're talking about like making things like really tangible. You mentioned events, which like you guys events were always like top shelf, like done right and so on. But I feel like so many early stage companies, like they they don't know how important that is and what it leads to, and so they start to kind of over index on what the budget allows for or even you know you mentioned customers like having the you know the rigor to say you know we want to pursue these types of organizations and you know maybe turn down or not focus on like a really low-paying piece of fruit in terms of of revenue like are all decisions that seem kind of small like you could do an event at like the holiday inn or what have you or you can do an event at you know on sand hill road and and at the rosewood what What do you think, I'm sure there's been like a past experience and so on, but like, what what do you think allowed you to have that understanding that some of those small things really lead to like big ramifications? Like, have you seen that not work in in the past or, you know, like what what provided that focus?
2: Yeah. I mean, I I just feel like you do need to have this long-term vision and strategy, but there are also these short-term decisions. That you need to make as an early stage company or founder or entrepreneur that you can make in isolation. And I'll just use the events as an example of that. The way we got started in events is I think Craig came to me and said, hey, we should host an event and just see how it goes. And I told him, well, we're not going to host an event at the Holiday Inn. We're going to host it at the Rosewood Sand Hill. And so we got to figure out how to do that. And and we figured it out. And the way we figured it out is now I'm guessing things have changed, but like actually, you know, hosting an event at the Rosewood Sandhill wasn't as expensive as you might have thought it might be. We had a little hack there, which was we convinced the events manager, event manager there that we wouldn't need to do a room block, which is how they make all their money. So and we basically hosted a bunch of events. Without ever doing a room block at the Rosewood Sandhill, which was awesome, right? And we also came to people that we knew pretty well, like you um, and lead MD, and basically said, Hey, we're hosting this event. Would you like to sponsor the event? And we didn't ask for a ton of money, right? Like not a lot of money at all, but we got a little check that could kind of subsidize this nicer event.
1: At no point. Well, that's, that's all right because I I got at least you know a four thousand percent ROI in those events because <laughs> I still own I'm convinced millions of dollars of their pens, pens and will happily <laughs> sell those online. They're the best pen literally ever.
2: Yep, those pens are worth thousands of dollars a piece. So at no point in time did Craig and I ever look at each other and say, "How does this fit into like a bigger strategy or?" We, we knew it would be good for the brand. We knew what we wanted the brand to be. But that particular decision was just kind of made in isolation where it became something bigger was we told ourselves, if it works, we're going to do more. And it totally worked. And so that's one, you know, I, I guess I'd call that like an early stage experiment. And and the key to that experiment, like a lot of early stage experiments in my mind is to be creative and to, and be willing to like, call the event manager and say hey we're like this little company we'd love to do an event there just tell us a date that's open we'll take it by the way we can't do a room block or calling you and saying we i think we literally told you we have no idea what's going to happen at this event but you're still going to pay us right and so and so being willing to get being able to get creative like that and then ultimately have a win that can scale and fit into a longer term vision that that paid big dividends for us early early at Topo. Totally.
0: Yeah. So like even talking about the Invit I think getting really focused on what that meant. So, you know, you mentioned brand for a startup is different than brand for Coca-Cola, right? right, right. It's like more have to do it as part of they AR and be part of the community. But for a smaller organization, it means something very different when you have to go and sell into the types of companies. To, right? Like I experienced it firsthand with folks that I knew who sold at Marketo when they went out somewhere else that didn't have the same type of brand as Marketo. All of a yeah. sudden, they're having a hard time selling, right? Uh, it, it gives you access that you otherwise wouldn't have access. And that punching a bigger weight class, I think, is a big deal when you are in those early stages of being able to access the types of companies you want to sell into. And how did, how, how did that byproduct push out for Topo?
2: Oh, it was it was a big deal for us. I mean, we were basically getting meetings with companies and decision makers in these companies that we probably had no business getting meetings with given given our actual size. You know, there the, we we talked about surrounding ourselves with um with with, you know, big high or not even big but just cool high growth companies like we would we would call on people and basically say, "Hey, we're already working with these twenty other companies." And and a decision maker at a really great company, if they see twenty other great companies, they they want to know about that, right? So it was like a it was a cheat code to get meetings with um, really really high value prospects for us. There was one other. I'll, I'll just mention one other way that we were able to manifest that brand or. Punching above our weight, whatever, whatever you want to call it, and that is um, Craig Rosenberg, my co-founder. He already had a personal brand, and um, we were able to piggyback off of that personal brand. Back then, he was known as
1: the Funnel Holic, and was we got to pop up that photo. You know which one I'm talking about? Yeah. Like I'm, I'm, it's I'm, every sorry. profile photo, <laughs> like that <my dad> can. <laughs> it is funny by the time he switched it, he looked totally different. I mean, the photos yeah. from him like twenty five. <laughs> so so Craig had this personal
2: brand, and we really steered into that. Like we basically said, we're gonna piggyback off of the Craig brand until the Topo brand is bigger than the Craig brand. And I feel like, you know, founders um have an opportunity to do that, whether you realize that or not, right? Like, Good founders will be able to, you know, they have the intellect, they have the drive, they have the personality to create these personal brands. And it's okay if that personal brand is bigger to start, like take the easier path, right? But Craig, um, Craig's personal brand was like, yeah, fuel on the, or, or I guess maybe
1: even the spark that sort of started yeah, the ignition the fire. Yeah, exactly. That helped a lot. So I know Topo obviously wasn't your first venture, but obviously, you know, most recent top of mind. How has that experience differed from, you know, what you mentioned, what you're doing now, like kind of going back to the drawing board and and starting that all over again? Like, is is, it, is there anything fundamentally different at this point or is it just kind of rinse and repeat?
2: Well, the big difference now is, you know, my, my new company is a company called Goldie. And I've basically, I have two co-founders who um, both have really deep product expertise in the sales technology space. One of them was one of the original product people and a co-founder at Groove, which was recently acquired by Clary. And my other co-founder has led really big engineering teams at Seismic and elsewhere. And so we are trying to build a, a technology product, you know, specifically a SaaS application um, where Go- the, the company Goldie, the, the name of the product's also Goldie, and Goldie's basically an AI co-pilot for sales reps. So there are these huge differences between building a technology company and building a research and advisory business. The research and advisory business, um, this was both an opportunity and a challenge. There, You can change... So that's like fundamentally a services business at the end of the day. It's not a technology business. Mm -hmm. Um, Changing your product roadmap in a services business, it was a subscription business. It was a scalable, repeatable business, but you can change your product roadmap and what's in the product like every day if you want to. You can literally wake up one morning and say, hey, we're going to write a piece of research on this. That's the product, right? Mm -hmm. You, You don't have to lock into that. You know, on January first, at the beginning of the year, and we did a lot of that, right? In response to um, what we believed were opportunities in the market, and also kind of new emerging trends that would just kind of come our way in the world of B two B sales and marketing, we would just adjust what would go into the product based on that. Tech, yeah, you can't do that, right? Like tech, you have to have a vision, you have to have a roadmap. I know people talk about lean and all, you know, and agile and all all this kind of stuff that allows you to be more nimble in the world of tech. At the end of the day, you have to put a stake in the ground and you have to go build something around that. And if you're adjusting that literally every day, it's not going to work, right? You're never going to build anything meaningful. So the amount of time that we've been spending on like laying the foundation for a good product at Goldie is really, really different than how we did it at Topo. At Topo, it was like, oh, a customer wants this, great. We're going to go do that. In the early mm-hmm. days, just went and did that. Can't do that in tech. Is
0: the in the, the difference there? Is the brand, in the way we've been describing it, is it different? About, and and pumping, punching above your weight class is one thing, your Topo or LeanMD or, or, or something like small, you said services agency. But I feel like the sales AI generated sales tech space is already getting crowded. Right. So is the brand as much about differentiation at this point? I kind of think of Drip, right? When they first came out, right? The brand took over and made that thing almost anonymous with chat, right? There are others out there, right? There are plenty of other chat bots. There always have been, but the B2B Martech sales tech space thought of Drip. Is that kind of how you're thinking about it a it differentiation or what thought process has gone butt into at this point?
2: Well, we'll see if we're going to find out if we're right about this, but, but <laughs> you are correct. The uh, the AI space in general, and in sales tech in particular, it's a crowded space. Yeah. It um, there are a lot of startups. Obviously, in my opinion, it's overcapitalized with venture money. The other crazy dynamic in this market is, you know, most new like technology paradigm shifts, like the internet or mobile or cloud or SaaS or now AI, startups really benefit. It's actually not, you know, just being fully transparent. It's not clear that's gonna be the case here, right? Like, you know, Salesforce and Microsoft and even the mid-size kind of sales tech companies like Gong and Outreach and everyone's basically packing AI into these existing products. So so it's a crowded space. So the, the the question is, what do you do about that as an early stage entrepreneur? And one thing we are doing is we are now, you know, like we are out there kind of just like we piggybacked off of Craig's brand with Topo. We're piggybacking off of my personal brand at Goldie. You know, we're very active on kind of sharing our thoughts and opinions and that type of stuff. But to be totally honest, we don't really care about that. That's just something for us to do to keep us in the market. What we're really focused on is just building the best damn product that we can build. And then- we think a lot of stuff's gonna sort itself out based on who has the best product in this AI space. And the reason for this is because we actually don't believe that AI is fully ready for B2B settings yet. It is it is a very useful toy tool in a consumer setting. In a B2B setting, if you make a mistake, like some of the LLMs make today, you're in big trouble, right? Like it's a problem. And so we're really investing heavily in this idea of like, let's just build a really great product because we understand that you can't make mistakes in the world of B2B sales and marketing. Let's go build a really, really good product and let's see what happens from there. What what happens from there? I don't really know yet. I mean, I you're raising a good point, Josh, but like, I, I don't, I don't really know. Like, what I can tell you is like if you ask an LLM who the CEO of company XYZ is because you want to prospect into them, sometimes the LLM gets that wrong. That's a that that may be okay in a consumer world, whatever the consumer example is of that. In B2B, that doesn't work. You got
1: you got to solve that problem. I think what's interesting there, and this is gonna sound like a really stupid statement, but like the the intimate connection between, you know, product or or offering and brand. And the reason why that should be stupid is, you know, so many organizations don't make that same connection, right? Like you've got, again, like we mentioned in the beginning, like marketing teams and, and branding teams that are often operating in a silo that are essentially putting lipstick on a pig, right? Like, here's what we want to be, or here's what we want our message to be. But there's no real connection to, you know solution, achievement, output, and so on and so forth. So I'm curious, who who do you see out there that that is doing that that is, you know, overcoming that that unfortunate paradigm and is actually doing this really well from a branding perspective in kind of modern day B2B? Yeah.
2: Well, um I think it's a really good point, which is, you know, it's one thing to like say that or get the market to perceive that you punch above your weight. Then you actually do need to punch a bunch punch right a bunch of, wait, right, yeah, You have to deliver, yeah. yeah, you, you gotta you gotta deliver, right? And you know if I, I'll, I'll I'll come back to where we are today. but like, you know if i if I look at if I look at Topo, we were actually pretty good at fulfilling on that promise, right? And I look at like what our analysts were capable of doing when you came to an event, how much how much value you just get from like, you know, a half day event or whatever. Like the feedback we got from actual customers on the back end was almost always very, very high. I mean we we made we made mistakes like every business does, but but generally people were very happy with the value that they got from Topo. In terms of, of who's doing a good job of this today, I mean I'm not sure I have great examples in the B2B space. What I, what I can tell you is that in AI, again, my opinion is n- no one, like the, the the AI hype beast or whatever you want to call it is like way out in front of what these tools and applications are capable of doing. Like it, it just is. And what I would call what's happening in AI right now is more kind of experimentation, as opposed to, at least in B2B sales, it's more experimentation than it is like actual mission-critical usage, where like a mission-critical business process or workflow is really, really dependent upon AI to work. Like, I, I talk to dozens of sales organizations every week, and I haven't heard anyone say, Oh yeah, we're using AI in this mission critical business process. There's sort of labs and working groups and experiments and you know task forces and pilots and that kind of stuff, but nothing that's like truly mission critical yet. So again, we'll see. Like the vendors need to build some really good products here to live up to the height. When no one's
1: done that. Yeah, we we, we could have an entire show on on poor examples of, of hype driven product that I, I, I won't throw anyone under the bus specifically, but like uh, Josh, I think you were on this, this, um, uh, disco call a while back, but like the funny thing about AI right now is like a lot of these products are actually like in a very transparent manner using paid users to, to train the model. Like we, we, we were looking at a, um, and I guess there's always varying degrees of that regardless in AI, but like This was like a a customer success solution and they would serve up you know just plug your data in right because that's easy um and and we will display these dashboards and if you don't find one helpful just mute it and then you know what i mean (laughs) that's like
0: so yeah there's some some crazy stuff out there yeah that's right yeah i think ai is general super nondescript right now right there is no brand that rises above the rest because it's all just ai and they think they're zoning on ai like the, like the person on the other side is actually supposed to know what that means. You know, it, it seems like it, it's been made accessible through some channels like chat GPT and whatnot. But then every once in a while, you run into this actual data science. You work for like NASA or the Navy or, or something like that. And they've been doing real AI for 15 years. And they've got a decade of data that they're botched through these. And then they tell you about the stuff that they do. And you so sit there and you think, how, that's not even possible with these plugins that someone's doing to route through Chat GPT or something like that, right? It's it's yeah. it's crazy, and I, I think that's what your point around building a really good product. Some of these things aren't even products, right? They're just like widgets that were plugged into something and they slapped a, a logo on it. That's right. They're plugins, and I, you know, by the way, I I think
2: people are working hard on these things. It's it's just a it's a time thing, right? And the hype cycle got way out in front of us on this one. And now product organizations need to catch up as, as do the rest, you know, the rest of the, the AI vendor organization, right? Like we need better messaging in this space. Like, I don't think anyone's done a really good job of articulating like clear use cases and uh, app, you know, actual application of AI in B2B. I, I mean, maybe one exception to that is like the, the, the generative AI use cases around writing emails, but like how valuable mm-hmm. is that really, you know, at the, at the end of the day, is it, is that super valuable? I, I don't know. I don't hear people saying like, oh, I've got to have that. That's incredibly
0: valuable. Yeah. What, what did you say earlier? A specificity wins or something like that. I, I think they'd come down to the the, part, the the form function of what it is you're doing, Right? functional AI is there a specific use case or application that this was built around? I think Justin and I have a pretty good example in our portfolio, a company called Pitstop, and it doesn't even describe themselves as AI. However, they're using predictive analytics to pull in data from a common data source that companies have in the space and fleet, fleet management, and then being able to predict what's gonna happen to a vehicle in the future, right? Like, it's a very specific function in these case, like, you look for these fault codes, we serve them up to you, this keeps the vehicle on the road, without downtime, here's the ROI. Right. I think it's yeah, yeah. That's right. But, yeah. Pretend it's doing all these things and it's not. It's it's very specifically saying this is what we saw by having the downloaded capabilities, right? And I, I think that's what folks are looking for. Yeah. Yeah. it more tangible. That's a cool example. I like that.
1: Hey, I want to circle back to something uh that we touched on a little bit in the beginning. So like from a from a scalability per- well let's talk about the opposite of ai let's talk about people which is always the you know complexity to to build and scaling businesses um it, how do you how do you ensure you know alignment with a brand as you start to to bring people on board right like what did you guys do to ensure like hey this is who we are this is you know this is good this is what bad looks like and you know how do you operate within you know that construct when brand is so important
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think that all comes down to, it sounds obvious, right? But hiring the right people. And uh, of course, and uh, there there are kind of two, I don't know, sets of criteria that, that we would look for at Topo. One is, you know, we were talking earlier about how our customers really wanted to know the how, as opposed to the what and the why. Well, it turns out there are a lot of people out there who can talk about the what and the why, and there are very few people out there that can talk about the how. Mm-hmm. And so we always had our antenna up looking for people who could do the how, right? That was that was, and there there were signals we'd look, for, you know, like had they worked at one of these cool high growth companies before, right? Had they been a consultant to one to you know that segment of the market, etc., right? Like. Um, but, but ultimately it comes down to like talking to them, interviewing them, and to the point earlier about specific specificity wins, making sure that they were able to be really, really specific in the conversations we had with them during the recruiting and hiring process, right? And that's just that's something that's learned by an organization like, oh, that person, they were flying at 30,000 feet, We need to be, we need them to be down at 2000 feet and they were not there, right? Mm -hmm. Um, that's someone we would not have hired. The other sort of set of criteria that we, we looked at was more kind of a, I guess I'd call it like a culture, cultural kind of personality fit, not so much with Topo, but with our customers. Like, did we believe that that person? could go deliver a half-day workshop at Google, right? Right. Look, could they credibly do that or not? And then we we also did this thing where like, and I look back on this and I, I chuckle about it sometimes, but like we we had these like, they weren't necessarily written down anywhere, but it was sort of understood like if you worked at Topo, there were just these certain things that you were expected to do. And like we'd have people join the company and they'd say, uh, so I need my new laptop and I want it to be a ThinkPad, blah, 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 you know, dot, 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 dot. And we would send them a Mac because <laughs> you were not gonna walk into a high growth tech company with a ThinkPad and a blue suit on, and like that was not going to happen. And we didn't even talk about it with you. We just sent you the Mac. And we'd get these emails and calls like I've never used a Mac before. What should I? Do? And it's Good like, like it out. <laughs> You know, workshop at Google's tomorrow. Um, and yeah. so, so that was that was kind of this. I don't know. It probably drove some people crazy, but it was this intentional thing where it was like, no, we're going to work a certain way. Like even individually, like how we do our day to day work that manifests this high growth brand. Hmm.
0: Yeah, makes plus awesome. I mean, whether you like it or not, right or wrong, what you're saying, and I had witnessed this firsthand, really? is the personality of the founder or founders really sets the tone for that internal brand, right? And some of those things that you said were written down somewhere. I mean, that's how you acted. That's how you spoke. That's how you presented yourself when you got in front of a brand. And that stuff catches on. There is just no other way around it you have to as a as a as the leader of the ship have to man- manifest that stuff yourself and how you act and behave They'll assimilate or die <laughs> yeah yeah exactly. well scott this has been awesome uh, before we let you go if there's anything else i know we talked a little bit about building, but we'd love to hear about you know what's the value prop what are you guys building and then where can we find you if folks want to talk to you or moldy
2: Yeah, awesome. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Goldie is basically an AI co-pilot for sales reps. And what we're really trying to do with Goldie is help sales reps in a couple of different ways. One is um, Goldie will suggest and execute sales plays on behalf of reps. And the whole idea here is um, increase conversion rates basically. And so like an example of a play that Goldie might help a rep execute is what we call a close loss win back play. So imagine you lost a deal six months ago. Goldie will remind I, you- I can't, you can't picture it. it. No, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what? When, 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 what 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 happens when reps lose a deal? They never actually go back to it, right? Like that thing right. lost and it's gone, right? So- Goldie will remind you 6 months later, "Hey, remember you were working on this deal, you marked it closed loss. Let's go back and try and win it back. You know, we're mm-hmm. coming up on one year anniversary of, of the deal cycle." And Goldie will help run a play to help help the rep run it back, win it back. And so, that's a example of Goldie trying to improve conversion rates. And imagine that happening across, you know, dozens, hundreds, thousands of reps and many, many different types of plays. The other thing that Goldie does for reps that's really cool is it tries to save them time and make them more efficient so that they can spend more time on actual selling. So Goldie will do things like keep the CRM up to date for you. And you may wonder how it does all that. That's kind of that's a whole nother, you know, half hour long conversation. It's just an AI, bro. Just yeah, me. yeah. It's just it's just matters. Anyway, so that's, that's what we're building at Goldie. We're working with um, what we call our charter customers right now who are using the product. They're essentially design partners to us. We'll probably be doing more of a GA-type release uh, sometime in October. But, yeah, it's, it's an exciting time in sales. And I like what you were talking about earlier, Josh. You know, we absolutely believe that there are these uniquely human skills that salespeople possess, Right. And then we also believe there are a whole bunch of things that AIs will be really good at as well. And so right. we're trying to kind of play over here in this space so that salespeople can spend more time on the uniquely human things that make sales really, really valuable.
0: Well, it sounds awesome. Hopefully we can be a part of it somehow. It'd be great to you know, get our portfolio companies testing it out or something like that. That could be cool. Um, where do where we go? their website we we actually have a really crummy
2: website and you can go check it out at uh, goldie.ai and it's g o l d i e .ai and you know there's some content there that explains what we what we're building but uh, re- really if you want to learn more reach out to me on linkedin or my emails on the website and and just ping me
0: happy to chat all right you know up level your brand have a shitty website it's all yeah it's all coming it all makes sense now yeah <laughs> all right scott well thank you to join the show for those of you that like listening to us and uh, hopefully scott more than us uh come and subscribe to us on your favorite fight platform and write a review that would be great that helps us expand our reach until next time this has been cheat code